today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Trauma is pretty subjective, which means that it's up to the individual to determine what was traumatic for them. Because when I use the word trauma, I describe things like being overwhelmed, feeling like your life was in danger, and even not in a physical way. Sometimes it's our emotional, mental sense of safety is threatened in some way. And working with more complex trauma, one of the things that I like to explain too is trauma isn't necessarily always what happens to you. It's also what didn't happen for you. The absence of loving, caring parent, for example, can be trauma. It's called attachment trauma. Hey guys, we've got a really special episode for you today from Lauren Rudolph. Lauren is a trauma therapist and she specializes in PTSD and complex trauma. I'm really excited to bring her to you today because trauma is a word we're hearing a lot in the media, but I feel like we need somebody to actually talk to us about the science behind what truly works to help people heal and set people free from the effects of trauma so that they can go on to live full, amazing lives. Lauren is amazing at doing therapy for people with trauma, but she's also an incredible teacher. I met her when I worked at Sonare today, a multi-location practice on the East Coast that specializes in offering intensive outpatient therapy combined with functional medicine. She helped develop the trauma-focused intensive groups at Sonare, and she currently oversees all programs and trainings as the director of program development. In her private practice, she specializes in treating people with complex trauma and dissociative disorders, including DID. She's passionate about using EMDR, ego state therapy, and clinical hypnosis in the treatment of complex trauma. You're gonna leave this conversation feeling like you learned a lot about trauma that you didn't know, and that what you learned is actually gonna help you make some really concrete changes to heal from it fast and for good. Before we get started, I wanna talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Lauren Rudolph, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Kate. I am so glad you're here. I want to get started with why is healing from trauma awesome and why should everyone do it? It is truly awesome. There's so many things about it. The first thing that comes to mind for me is that before you heal from trauma, a lot of people have this experience of walking through life like they're carrying this heavy backpack on them. And sometimes they don't even realize just how heavy it's been because they're just so used to carrying it. The awesome thing about healing from trauma is knowing, first of all, that, hey, I've been carrying around this really heavy backpack and I can actually set it down. I don't have to just keep carrying it. I don't have to just be used to carrying this heavy weight. And then I can take some stuff out of it, make it a little lighter, and I don't have to walk around life so heavy and way down in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because you are one of the most lighthearted, fun, caring, happy people I know. And I think it says so much that's true about you because a lot of people, I think, hear the word trauma therapy and they feel a little scared or they feel like it might be really heavy or depressing or scary. Why is that not true? 
that is definitely a part of trauma therapy that might get heavy or feel painful to go through. But what I don't think people know, at least about the trauma therapy that I do, and I know a lot of clinicians do, is we try to incorporate a lot of feeling good into trauma therapy. Because one of the things that is really important about being able to heal from trauma is your ability to feel happy or even neutral, feel calm, feel content. And a lot of trauma therapy has to do with increasing your ability to feel that, feel in the present moment with whatever is happening. And what that looks like is we might be just playing a game in therapy sometimes, cracking some jokes, telling funny stories. One way to actually measure someone's ability to feel good is to see how long can we have a conversation about something good that happened this weekend or a fun memory that you have. And then start there and see if we can build your ability to just keep talking about good stuff. And that makes it really fun. One of the words I hear you use a lot when we talk about this type of healing is freedom, rediscovering your strengths. For the person at home who's thinking, okay, I know this is an interesting topic. I know it's a trending topic. I know it's important. How would I know if I need this or what could I expect to gain if I heal from trauma? Can you walk us through that? I think that is a question that a lot of people are probably asking themselves. I think that there's a lot of things that are happening in the world that can be really scary, really overwhelming. And so if you feel at all that you may have been impacted by things that have happened in your life, therapy is a good place to come to to understand yourself better. It's really about understanding yourself, understanding what you've been through, how that's affected you. It's a little bit different than, I guess, the term counseling or advice. Sometimes people think that they're going to therapy as somebody telling you what to do and you should just do this. And it's really not. As a therapist, our job isn't to tell people what to do, to give them advice. We don't know. <laughs> if we had all the answers, I don't think we'd be a therapist. We're really here to help people really know themselves and have compassion for themselves and be able to just grow and heal from what's happened to them. And one way to do that is, first of all, to find a therapist that you connect with. Because if you don't have a connection where you feel comfortable talking, answering questions, it might be hard to feel like you can really get that experience of really knowing yourself. Once you are able to find the therapist that feels like the right fit, just allowing yourself to answer questions that come up about yourself and really explore things from your past that you may not have had an opportunity to talk about. That's one of the things I always tell people that I really like about therapy is like, where else do you get to go where you can just talk about yourself? Focus on yourself, not in a narcissistic, self-centered way, but like the therapist is all there for you. My attention is 100% on you in that moment. I want to know everything. I want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to judge anything. I want this to be a space like no other space that you have where you can just be yourself. Even around our family and loved ones, sometimes because we have histories with them, we can't always be that open. I like to think of it as like that neutral space where you can really explore things and get to know yourself. So important for every single person. I'm glad that you're doing this. And I'm glad that you're teaching other therapists to do this really important work as well. There's different types of therapy. And you do a type of therapy where you work with folks who have trauma and PTSD and complex trauma. And there's some specific things that you do as part of that specific type of therapy. I want to start by just helping folks understand when we say trauma, what do we actually mean? Because a lot of people think, I never lived through a tsunami and nothing crazy has happened to me. This doesn't apply to me. What would you say to that person? I would say that's a pretty understandable response. I think when you hear the word trauma, it typically what people go back to is when the 
term PTSD was first coined, which was around the time where veterans were coming home and had this kind of shell shock, like they've been through war. Sometimes people think war, like you said, tsunami, these big events that can happen, which are very obvious. One of the first things I'd say is sometimes trauma can be obvious and pretty explicit, like those events, but sometimes trauma is not so obvious. Trauma is pretty subjective, which means that it's up to the individual to determine what was traumatic for them. Because when I use the word trauma, I describe things like being overwhelmed, feeling like your life was in danger, and even not in a physical way. Sometimes it's our emotional, mental sense of safety is threatened in some way. And working with more complex trauma, one of the things that I like to explain too is trauma isn't necessarily always what happens to you. It's also what didn't happen for you. The absence of loving, caring parent, for example, can be trauma. It's called attachment trauma. There are all different kinds of trauma within that umbrella of trauma. I also like something that Gabor Mate says when he talks about trauma. He says that it's what happens to us, but it's what happens inside of us as a result of what's happening to us for which that doesn't need to be dramatic. And that's why it's also so subjective because what happens inside of me because of what's going on might be different than what happens inside of Dr. Kate when something happens to you. We can experience the same exact thing, grow up in the same household, and we have two different nervous systems. Maybe it's because of our ages or just literally anything. And that is going to determine what makes something traumatic and really stick with someone because we're also talking about an event or a situation that has an experience inside of us. And then that has effects. Those effects last beyond when the event is over. When you have gone through just one event, that's a single incident trauma, also known as PTSD, just simple PTSD. And then there's complex trauma. And complex trauma does present differently than PTSD because sometimes individuals who have PTSD have symptoms like flashbacks and nightmares and these hyperarousal symptoms. People who've been through complex trauma, which is typically like childhood trauma, think about things like going through abuse, witnessing domestic violence, bullying, just a trauma over a period of time or multiple repeated experiences, develops complex trauma. And those individuals may not present as classically PTSD, which is why they actually oftentimes go missed. They can present with things like just intense amounts of shame and depression, but no flashbacks, sometimes no memories. They might say, I'm just a bad person and I don't know why. But it's because there might be dissociation in there, which is another type of PTSD. You can have trauma with dissociation, which just means that the brain has just done a really good job of packing things away and the individual is their memories are a little bit more fragmented. Things don't quite make sense altogether. I think it's just important for everyone to just take our time to get to know individuals and what they're experiencing and just to not assume that there's no trauma if they're not coming in and saying, this thing happened to me. And lastly, there's attachment type of trauma. I mentioned before that trauma is not just what happens to you, it's what didn't happen to you. And so when you grow up and with the absence of a nurturing caregiver or the absence of a caregiver who has empathy or things like that, can develop these attachment traumas, also known as attachment wounds, where the individual just has beliefs about themselves, like I can't have needs or I'm not important and nothing physical may have happened, but the emotional neglect piece is what ends up being a traumatizing experience for the individual and can also definitely be healed as well. I think it's so important that you talk through those different types of trauma. I think a lot of people aren't aware that there are different types. And I'll say guys at home, some of these are new. We're just starting to talk about complex PTSD. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not even in the DSM yet, but don't wait on them to be able to do something because it, for some reason, they have a very long process to get new diagnoses in there. We're already like, it's a thing. We're treating it. We're teaching about it. 
we're spreading the word. <laughs> if you have anything you want to be better, you guys should just treat it. And Lauren's going to tell you how, because we don't want you to wait. Because in the same way, we're just finding out about complex PTSD and really starting to talk about it. There's probably another type of trauma we're going to discover in five years. Don't wait for the label. We're going to give you the tools today to heal from whatever hard things have happened to you, however they're showing up. Absolutely. We don't need a label to treat it either. If you want one, we can probably come up with it, but it's not necessary. <laughs> That's what I think is so beautiful. Before I went to med school, I was someone who definitely thought of PTSD and trauma, and I would focus on the T. Yeah, the big T. Part of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I would think, is the trauma big enough to qualify for PTSD? And once I went through med school and training and trauma-informed care, I was like, oh, it's the D part of that. It's the PTSD. It's the disorder. It's not, did you have a trauma big enough to count so that you now deserve trauma therapy? It's, are you experiencing symptoms as a result of whatever happened to you that need attention so that you can heal and then begin to live in integrity with who you are and your values and not be derailed by triggers or memories and then have that freedom can we drop into that a little bit more? I want people at home to understand what might be happening in their bodies or with their reactions or in their relationships that may clue them into, hey, I think I might benefit from some trauma therapy here. That makes me think of a term that a consultant I used to work with for EMDR uh, shared with me. She had a saying that hysterical is historical. Whenever we're having a reaction to something and it feels like this reaction is a little bit much for the situation, it's not quite fitting, it's maybe over the top, or maybe it's like, I'm not reacting like I should. It's a little under responsive. Either of those usually is an indication that, hey, this isn't because of the situation. This is because of something that is in a part of your history that may not be fully resolved. Sometimes that kind of clues us in. If we find ourselves having these hysterical as historical reactions can clue us into there might be something that is not quite taken care of yet in our history. You have training in something called EMDR. And among the tons of other training you have and experience, it makes you an expert on what's happening in the brain and the nervous system when it comes to trauma. I want you to first walk us through why does the brain matter and why is trauma actually brain and nervous system based? What's going on with that? And then I do want to move into EMDR, but let's start with that. Give us the one minute like kind of story you wish everyone was told about how their nervous system works. I would say everything starts in the brain and then goes from there. There's that connection between our mind, our body, our brain, and our nervous system. I guess one of the things that I would explain to people is that you can't see your brain. <laughs> it's really hard for people to understand that your brain is impacted by things that happened around you. Um, it's pretty obvious when you fall off your bike and you have a scraped knee. But if someone is screaming at you, threatening you, it's hard to see what's actually happening in our brain. But our brains are wired to help us to survive. When we are going through a situation that triggers that brain's response for fight, flight, or freeze, that's going to then have an effect on our nervous system as well. And if the threat is over, everything's taken care of, the body can readjust. The brain is really resilient and able to bounce back from things. But there are a few situations in which the brain cannot fully recover. And 
those are some of the effects that you were talking about earlier. What would we look for in terms of, do I have trauma that would clue us into like, hey, the brain didn't quite get a chance to finish doing what it needed to do. And again, the cool thing is the brain has the ability to do that. That's why I love EMDR is because it uses the brain's natural ability to heal itself and to help the nervous system become regulated again. It just takes some work to identify, hey, we noticed that your brain has been affected and then here's what we can do about it. One of the things that helped this hit home for me, I studied biofeedback and I know you did as well. And we share this common understanding of the vagus nerve. And I think anyone who's educated with trauma ends up talking about the vagus nerve at some point. And how it was taught to me was that as babies, we're meant to mirror and interact with folks. We see faces and we see facial expressions and hear vocal tones. And a lot of what's communicated to us helps us either feel safe or not. This is why everyone almost universally, like you pick up a baby and you go like, hi, and you open your eyes really big and you make your voice really sing-songy. And part of that is to convey to that other being, things are safe. And when you do that, what happens in that baby is the baby will relax. And that sympathetic part of the nervous system will take over and really help that baby become regulated be in rest and digest mode, be digesting their food, be breathing at a really steady pace. Whereas if they hear a really loud noise or they see a really scary thing going on, you go more into fight or flight. And that's a mode where you're much more reactive. You're not really thinking. And it makes it really hard to heal in that mode because you're not resting, you're not digesting, you're just reacting and surviving. You mentioned fight or flight or freeze. And I feel like there's a really powerful understanding that people get when we talk about those modes. Can you walk us through what are the types of responses people can have to a threat? Because a lot of us have heard of fight or flight, but a lot of us have not heard of the freeze or shutdown part. Absolutely. And there's a couple of different types of freeze too, which a lot of people don't know about. But first, I just want to say I really enjoy Deb Dana's polyvagal theory, just going through the nervous system in that way as well, because what she points out is that our sympathetic fight or flight, our parasympathetic, the freeze response, that they all have their everyday functions as well. Even though there are these survival aspects to our sympathetic nervous system, it also helps us to get through our day and to have energy and to feel motivated. There are adaptive and then some survival aspects of both of those. But yeah, starting with the sympathetic, that's our fight or flight response. Typically, how the hierarchy works is that if we are faced with a threat, if we can fight or flight our way out of it, we're going to go for that. However, if for whatever reason, fight or flight is going to be too much of a risk, cause us more harm in some way, freeze is going to be the next best response. And that's our parasympathetic system. And it's everyday function, as you were saying, the rest and digest it allows us to just slow things down. For example, when we need to go to sleep, we need to be in parasympathetic, which is why a lot of individuals who've been through trauma have a hard time sleeping because their nervous system gets triggered or stuck into the sympathetic and they can't get into that rest and digest mode and have really good sleep. But the parasympathetic in terms of a freeze response basically looks like actually for creatures out in the wild, it's like playing dead. They actually can immobilize their bodies to a point where they're not moving. They almost look like they're not breathing. Humans can do that as well if the situation called for it. When I think about the freeze response, I often think about children because children who go through trauma, as they grow up as adults, they tend to question themselves like, why didn't I run? Why didn't I fight? Why didn't I do something? And they forget that as a child, you are smaller. You are 
not as likely to be able to fight off someone, especially if it's an adult or a situation that is bigger than you. And you don't have to think about it. Your nervous system is going to make that decision for you and determine because you don't have time to pull in your prefrontal cortex and think about, hey, should I do option A, option B, just go. That allows us without thinking, without using the energy and time to do that, to just shut everything down. What that can look like is hiding, becoming visible, staying quiet. When I mentioned earlier that there's a few different kinds of freeze, we talk about how there's a difference between a submit and a collapse response, which I like to think about. I always get them mixed up, but I'm pretty sure the collapse response is like that deer in headlights where I look like I'm frozen, but on the inside, there's a lot of things actually happening and I'm really activated on the inside, but I can't show that. I'm like frozen versus submit. Again, I could be mixing these up, but the same thing during the headlights, I'm frozen and also the inside is frozen. There's nothing happening here. That is also very shut down. It could be one of those two options. And then there's also some the fourth F that people talk about now called the fawn response. And that is what most people think of as people pleasing, being able to appease our way into the situation is over and then I can come out of that response. But again, if you are stuck in a fawn response, especially as a child, it may be hard to understand as an adult, why do I keep finding myself in these situations or having this response when I want to be able to say no, when I want to be able to set a boundary and it's that response kicking in that at some point was adaptive and just being able to survive and being able to get through whatever was happening. I'm so grateful you described those different modes. And for everybody home, take a deep breath, just a little breath, maybe ground yourself. Because a lot of times when we're describing these things, memories can come up. Stressful things happen to us. Hard things happen to us as humans. On some level, you may be resonating with something that Lauren is saying. I just want to invite you. There's a lot of hope in this podcast. While you're going to hear some things that might bring up the thought, oh, maybe I need to heal from that. Or wow, I had no idea that was a symptom I was having. We are going to give you so many tools today, so much direction. You're going to feel really empowered. And this is why I'm so really grateful that Lauren is here. One of the interesting things that I would find really resonated with my clients who might come in and we worked at a mental health facility together and I would have a lot of people who would come in and they would be stuck in the shutdown mode. They would come in, it was like they couldn't even get out of bed. And they just had such a hard time mobilizing to do anything, getting to the gym, getting to work. And there was a lot of shame and a lot of negative self-talk like, oh, I'm just lazy or, oh, I just don't have enough willpower. And what we would discover through working with you, including somebody like you on their care team was, oh, actually your nervous system is really practiced in the shutdown response because that was something you had to do a lot growing up. Actually, what we need to learn to do is help you feel safe mobilizing. Because what may be happening to you is actually every time you do try to get out of bed or every time you do try to go do that scary thing that's a little anxiety producing, your nervous system is so practiced at just like pulling the brakes, being like, no, we're staying safe, that you're getting really stuck at home. Do you find that's true? And if so, what are some tools that you use to help people move out of that shutdown space? Yeah, I definitely find that to be true. And unfortunately, find it to be common in survivors, especially of complex trauma, having gone through trauma in childhood. And it's important to know, as you mentioned just a little bit ago, that there is hope there. The first step is really that awareness. If I'm operating around life and I don't know that's 
what's happening to me or why it's happening to me. It can feel really hopeless. This is just the way that life is. And that's not true. We try to understand what it is that happened. How did you end up with this response? How long has it been happening for? And then well, I think what's really important, I always use the analogy of getting into a pool. We could throw you in the deep end, but that would be a shock to your nervous system. And as much as people are like, I want to go from this mobilization to just moving around every day and doing all the things that can be a shock to our nervous system. And trauma was the original shock to the nervous system. We're not trying to re-shock the nervous system in the other direction because that can sometimes be overwhelming and hence traumatic. And we really aim to not re-traumatize anyone as well as a part of therapy. Finding a gradual way, again, going with the pool metaphor of can we dip a toe in? What would that look like? And then can we pull it back out? Finding ways to titrate or pendulate helping the individual move from immobilization. And then you mentioned that feeling safe to do so. One of the dynamics that can happen is that as I move out of that, there's that another survival response in me that says, no, that's not safe, as you said, when that's rooted in the past. Again, that was at some point adaptive for the individual to stay and shut down, helping the individual to practice And it might just be five seconds at a time, one second at a time, 10 seconds at a time, however much they can tolerate. And then it's okay, come right back out of it, slow things down again. And then let's build on that. Almost like if you were going to the gym, like it's a muscle that we're building, that we're strengthening and just knowing that's possible to do. Yeah, it can be fun. I want to give people some examples because one of the things I do find with people who are really depressed or shut down or just immobilized is that when I say to them, what would feel safe enough, good enough, what brings you a little bit of happiness, it can be really hard for them to access an answer. What are some examples about little things with the smells or taste or touch? If someone's thinking, I can't even think of a smell, what's the (laughs) list they could maybe think about choosing from? Something that most of my clients really enjoy, this is again from Deb Dana, is her idea of glimmers is what she calls them. And a glimmer is a microsecond. It is a microsecond of ventral vagal, that calm. And it could be a sip of a drink that you like from Starbucks or the sun in the morning when you open up the windows or that fresh air when it hits you your face and how that feels. And it's literally a microsecond, something that is very brief. And then what we do is we look for them. Again, remember I mentioned awareness is something that is often missing a little bit or needing to be built on. When we can bring in more awareness and we start paying attention, we can notice more glimmers around us because they tend to actually be there. But when the brain has been traumatized and it has been wired to look for danger and to keep us safe in that way, it starts to miss the other things that are around in our environment hearing the song of the birds outside. It's not paying attention to that. When we put that information out there for our frontal lobe to notice and say, okay, today I have the intention. I'm going to look for some glimmers today. I'm going to try to find one. And then I might talk to the person about that. And then usually they'll come back and say, I found a glimmer. I had one. (laughs) And it's really cool. (laughs) That is awesome. And just hearing at home, again, if you are someone who hasn't been noticing glimmers and you have been noticing What's wrong in your life? You may feel like, oh man, I'm just pessimistic. I need to be more positive. And I'll speak for myself, but I feel like Lauren agrees. I think the point of trauma therapy is to honor the part of you that had to do that to survive at some point. 
that's why you're doing that. And there's no shame. It's not that you're a negative person. Yeah, I'm seeing Lauren nod. So I want, you go, Lauren, you yeah. go. <laughs> you're right about that shame too. Like you mentioned that earlier, the person can't move out of bed and then they're shaming themselves. And that only digs us deeper in. And it's inevitable that we feel shame after having been through trauma. It's unavoidable. It's not shameful to have shame. It's part of that experience that happens. But yes, when we can understand that the things that, we do now that may be interfering with our life or not helping us grow are the things that actually helped us to survive and were adaptive. And the best bet at the time that we went through that, it can help us to try and gradually maybe honor and appreciate and respect those parts of ourselves and what we did to survive and hold that. And at the same time, learn and develop these other ways when it feels safe enough to do so. I talk a lot with our clients about it's not an either or situation and two things can be true at the same time. And it can be true. That was the best bet at then. And also now it's getting in the way of me doing what I'm able to do. And the opposite of shame is that self-compassion and the ability to say to ourselves, I understand why I did that. And I appreciate myself and what I had to do. And also here's what I'm learning and here's what I'm trying. I've heard recently this term being used instead of PTSD, PTSG. Yeah. Is that a little bit of that dynamic you're talking about of being curious enough to think, oh, I wonder why I did that. I wonder what I could do different. What's the growth term we're using now around this? I have heard of that more recently as well. I believe the growth term is more around this aspect of being able to recognize the things that I have made progress with since going through trauma. It can look like looking at aspects of my relationships and what's improved there or my self-efficacy and my autonomy. What have I been able to have resilience for or grow from after having been through trauma? Yeah. When you move to that space, it sounds like just a weight would fall off your shoulders a little bit and you'd be able to take that next step. Yeah. I love that. I want to give you space. Tell us about EMDR and the brain and why it matters and why everyone needs it. (laughs) All right. EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is why we call it EMDR. Usually what I tell clients is that it's a little bit different than a talk therapy session because with talk therapy, you're coming, you're just talking about your day, you're processing. EMDR is not a talk therapy, which can be good. For example, some people may not necessarily want to talk in detail about what happened to them. And with EMDR, you do not have to talk about it. Although I do always offer the individual an opportunity to do that because that can be a healing experience to hold that space with someone else and be able to say what's happened to me. But without talking about it, you can hold in your mind this memory while you're engaging in bilateral simulation and allowing the brain, like I said, to jumpstart that process of going through the memory. And usually what you can expect during this process is any emotions, body sensations, cognitions, and thoughts can come up that were related to the time that experience happened and the therapist is guiding you through it. I like to think of it as the person who's doing EMDR, you're running the marathon or the sprint, however much drama it is. And the EMDR therapist is the coach. We're on the sidelines and we set it up for you. And we're there to to guide you to make sure you don't go off track because sometimes the brain has the ability to just do that. So that's why we're there. And that's why EMDR is never 
recommended to do on your own. It's good to have someone there to help your brain stay on track. But other than that, the brain knows where it needs to go. It wants to go for what's adaptive. That's the adaptive information processing model that Francine Shapiro also developed with the MDR. The brain wants to make these connections with making sense of what happened in a way that's adaptive, in a way that helps me today, and then discarding whatever else I don't need to hold on to anymore. As the coach on the sidelines, we're just making sure the person's brain is doing that. And a lot of times their brains do it, which is really awesome because sometimes people think of therapy as like the therapist saying something at just the right time. They're like, oh, and they give this reflection and the person's like, oh, wow, that was so helpful. And that does happen with talk therapy, but with EMDR, it's even better because the person just makes this connection and you would have never thought that they would have made that connection. For example, in uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, he shares the story of this person he worked with who, I don't know why the story sticks in my mind, but the person was in an accident where their leg was caught under a car and they lost their leg. And as part of the MDR, the person gets to this point where they're able to be grateful for their leg that they lost because it helped them to survive the car accident and live. But he would have never come in and said, hey, did you ever think about being grateful for your leg that's not here anymore? That would not have been a good idea. But to allow that 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 person, that is what felt adaptive to them to be able to leave that memory with. And it's more powerful that way when it comes from the individual, from their brain, from their ability to connect with whatever adaptive information they have in their mind. And it just really helps it stick. I'm so glad you shared that story. I love that story. Just allow your brain to finally put a memory where it belongs in the memory bank and to stop it from affecting your nervous system and making it feel like that thing is still happening right now. You can finally put it in the file cabinet and shut that file cabinet almost. Usually what I explain to clients is the difference between a normal memory, what's called technically an autobiographical memory, and then a traumatic memory. And an autobiographical memory is like, yes, that happened. I remember. And it's pretty neutral. Yes, I went to the store and this thing happened and I can think about it now. Versus a traumatic memory is when I think about that memory, all the yucky stuff comes up too, like this feeling in my body, I'm getting nauseous or whatever it is. And that doesn't need to be here. That response isn't serving a purpose anymore. It's really just the brain being able to say, okay, we don't need that yucky stuff anymore but we keep the memory. Sometimes people also wonder, I forget what happened. And no, people usually don't forget the memories. Although sometimes they will say things like, it's fuzzier, it seems further away, it's not as clear or vivid in my mind anymore. And that's how most of our memories are. It really is the brain, again, just doing what it didn't get a chance to finish doing. And I think for individuals who go through traumatic grief, for example, it does allow the individual an opportunity to have the memories they want to have about that individual. Because some individuals will worry about like, will I forget the person or will I lose certain things? And it's like, no, it's the opposite. You get to connect even more with the memories you want to have about your loved one and the traumatic components of the loss can subside. That's not in the forefront of the brain anymore. The way I describe it, and I'm not as eloquent or educated about this as you are, Lauren, you can correct me, but I feel like I heard this once and it resonated so much with me that I would use it to talk to my clients about why they needed to go get EMDR, (laughs) which is that I feel like it cuts the cord a bit between your memory and the emotional, physiological, visceral reaction to the memory, where you might feel like now they're fused. You can't even think about anything remotely close to that memory without your heart rate going up. You're starting to breathe heavier. You don't feel well. You're tense. Now, that memory's in a box. It's in a file cabinet. The file cabinet's shut. You can open it and look at it. And there's not necessarily a connection that will then trigger that response in your body 
where you feel bad. You can really just open the file, be like, oh, that's there, put it back. Yeah, absolutely. I have this image of opening a file that's like a trauma one and it's like, it's got those like scary ghosts coming out of it and the person's like, oh God, and they close that back up and they're like, I'm not. But when you do EMDR, you can open up the file and the picture's there and you're like, yep, it's there. And moving on with my day. It's done. And And the cool thing too about EMDR is when it's done, the memory is done. People will sometimes try to see if they can bring back up those same feelings. Can I bring up this feeling from the memory? They'll literally try. It's not there. It truly is done. The brain finished what it needed to do and it's now put away. I just want to summarize this for folks. It's basically like you go into your EMDR therapist's office. You don't even have to tell them what happened to you. You sit down with them. You do some exercises with your eyes and maybe bilateral simulation. You may need a few sessions and you leave not having forgotten anything necessarily, but no longer being controlled by the memories and really being in control of your response to them. And it doesn't take very long. Lauren, on average, how many sessions does this take? I have learned a little while ago to not give a number of sessions anymore. (laughs) I've got myself tripped up with that. It really does depend. For example, if you have a single incident trauma, one episode of something, I would say five or six sessions, maybe. It does get a little bit more complicated with complex trauma or traumas that have been ongoing or multiple together, in which case, yeah, everyone is different. But when it comes to just really getting in there, Another beautiful thing about EMDR is that there are different protocols. For example, going through a recent traumatic event, EMDR has this ability to literally could be like the day after it happens, the day of, however soon to that event that it happened, you can, again, jumpstart that brain's ability to reprocess it. It doesn't even become in the long-term memory as PTSD. Like you can prevent PTSD from happening. This is something I want individuals to know too. You don't have to wait to see, oh, is this event going to be something that now traumatizes me? You can do EMDR to just allow your body and your nervous system to have a chance to just really fully digest what happened and work through it. And that is also something that doesn't take more than a few sessions usually. And I would say other than popping right into the EMDR, we do definitely make sure our clients have an ability to ground at least, to feel calm. We do some prep work as well to make sure that they are leaving the session okay, they're starting the session okay, and that there are those yeah safety parameters in place. But it sounds like you're not necessarily locked into the whole year once a week if you want to do this. Yeah, it definitely does save time. The other reason why that is is because EMDR has a generalizability effect. Is that the word? (laughs) But what we know about the way that our memories are is that they exist within neural networks. If you work with an individual and you're doing EMDR and you do something that's called a float back, what you'll do is you'll get a picture of what's happening for them in the present and you'll talk them through are there previous times where whatever's happening for you in the present have happened before, whether it's the emotion that we're following or the body sensation. And usually what will come up is this spontaneous, sometimes people know what the memories are, but sometimes they don't. They're like, oh, wow, now that you say that, there was this time in fourth grade with this person was like bullying me. And that that totally feels like right now. So we're following this memory network that the memory network could be like, I'm a bad person or I always do the wrong thing. And we're identifying these target memories You don't have to clear every single one with EMDR because it has a generalizing effect. If I get to the earliest one, for example, and I reprocess that memory in a few sessions, then the other memories that were in that chain also get those benefits. Either they're much less 
distressing to get to and therefore take less time or they're completely finished. It depends on the individual, how it goes. But that also makes the therapy more efficient because we're not going through every single thing that has happened to a person with hitting the big ones. And then that generalizes and spreads to the rest of the memory network. And we're usually working in a memory network at a time. If we're working with someone who has had multiple traumas, we're going to clear out a memory network and then we're going to do another one. And then that also helps to speed things up. We're not just randomly all over over the place doing this, doing that. It's a very... Trauma therapy, especially EMDR, is very intentional. It's very intentional what we're doing, the phases we're going through. And part of it is to make the work efficient so individuals don't have to spend, yeah, years and years necessarily. It's huge. I feel like I learned about this from you and from other folks. And I was like, this is game changing. This is life changing for people. Yeah, I wish everyone knew. <laughs> it's almost like you don't believe it at first. I remember in one of my first EMDR trainings, you're watching a demonstration and it's a, someone who volunteered that's in the training to be a participant in the demo and you watch and you're like, wait, the, really? Their memory is done? And the person's like, yep, yeah, I feel better. And you're like, no way. And then part of getting EMDR trained is you practice with other therapists and you do it yourself. And then you're like, wow, this actually works. I also feel like that's a really powerful experience because we're bringing that with us when we're talking to our clients. There's not a whole lot of therapy approaches where you're necessarily going through it and doing that yourself and seeing the results instantly. That makes it, yeah, even better. I love that. I want to draw on some more of your expertise because EMDR is one of your tools. We have a ton of tools. But before we move on, can you tell folks if they're thinking man, this sounds like a great option for me or my kid or my partner or my friend. How would they find an EMDR trained therapist? EMDR does have an international association. EMDRIA.org is a website that anyone can go to where you can find information and videos about EMDR. You can find therapists on there. So they have a directory and you just type in your zip code. You can even click your insurance if you want to use your insurance. You can look for therapists who have specializations. So let's say you're like, I have a kid. I'm looking for an EMDR therapist who works with children. You just click those things and it'll generate a list for you and you can go about finding EMDR therapists that way. That's usually a really good approach. Or if you do know just any therapist that you trust, they're, most therapists I think now are connected to some EMDR therapists so then they can kind of word of mouth find therapists for you that way because I think they are sprinkled around a little bit more now. You have a ton of other tools that you use to help folks skill from trauma. Do you want to tell us kind of like ones that you wish more people knew about? First phrase that keeps coming to mind that I just want to mention about EMDR and trauma work. EMDR is pretty straightforward and easy in that sense of we have this great protocol. It works really well. Trauma therapy is a little bit harder. (laughs) It can look like a lot of different things depending on what that individual needs, which is why I've gone on to get other trainings and develop other tools because what I know about trauma therapy is that it does definitely need to be integrative and it needs to be unique based on that individual. And what I mean by integrative is pulling in more than one different... I know you know that, but to those out there who may not know, what does integrative mean? It means mind, body, spirit, working with emotions, working with our cognitions. It's not just one approach, even though I love EMDR and it's great. I have learned that, hey, a lot of times I need more than EMDR to pull in there, whether it's that the person isn't ready for EMDR yet, or we have some other things we want to work on as well to tie in there. A couple of the main approaches that I use in addition to EMDR, one is called ego state therapy, which is a type of parts work. That theory is based on this theory that we all have different parts of our personality that can have different perspectives on life and working with understanding what types of parts this person has. For example, when we go through trauma, we tend to have a part of ourselves that's like, you know what? 
that happened, but I need to go to work today. Let's just say you just got no car accident, but you're like, I got to get to work and I got stuff to do. So I can't think about that car accident. So I'm going to go on with my day. That's one part of our cell. And then at the same time, we have a part of ourselves that like the next time I get in the car, my heart starts beating really fast. And I'm thinking about that accident and it has all this again, emotion or body sensations in there. And that's another part of ourselves. Ego state therapy is really about helping the person to understand what are the parts of yourself that you have? How do they function? What are those, maybe some of the survival mechanisms that have been developed over time? and then bringing it together. I like to think of ego state therapy as like a family therapy, but for the just an individual um, working on bringing that person's sense of self together, appreciating themselves and working on understanding themselves better. That's ego state therapy. And then I also really enjoy clinical hypnosis. That's another approach that I like to weave in there. A lot of what I learned about hypnosis after I did the training was that EMDR and a lot of other approaches like ego state therapy all pull from hypnosis, which is just this aspect that we all have some form of a dissociation or trance that we experience. Some are helpful, some are not helpful. So hypnosis is about reducing the unhelpful trance or dissociation experiences that we have and increasing our helpful trance experiences. That can look like things even like imagery. Imagery is a hypnotic experience when you have someone close their eyes and picture something and really go somewhere in their body. They're typically in a particular type of trance or focus. It's what are we using that for? Are we using this to enhance safety? Are we using this to strengthen confidence? And that's the really cool thing is you can pick out as much stuff as you want to really resource with the individual. And I really like using hypnosis for that like resourcing aspect and for just strengthening what's already inside here and making it more vivid and just giving the mind something else to pay attention to. It's really hard to tell someone's mind. There's a red box over there. Don't look at it because the whole time you're going to be like, there's a red box. Like, I'm going to look at it. Hypnosis is about instead of being like, don't look at that. It's like, yeah, that is over there. But there's also a window over here if you want to look in that direction too. A lot of times people feel like, for example, everything feels really dark and hypnosis just says the question of like, do you want to bring in a light? Do you want to turn the light on? It doesn't have to be so dark in here. Do you want to bring someone in? You don't have to sit by yourself if you don't want. I'm just having that person be able to visualize that and bring that together. Wow. I love that. <laughs> if people think of hypnosis, I think, and they picture the tests that came to their school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it made their friend act like a chicken or something. Yeah, there's always the chicken one. Then <laughs> That must be a very popular, yeah, performance hypnosis. <laughs> yeah, usually we'll start off with like, this is experience that you had. And if they talk about that one, I explain that there's definitely a difference between performative hypnosis and clinical. Because if you think about it, when you're going to a hypnotist as a show, the goal, the intention is to entertain. The person who volunteers wants to entertain. They're highly hypnotizable in that situation versus clinical. That's, yeah, it's a whole different intention and focus there. We're not trying to, yeah, not trying to make anyone act like a chicken. <laughs> you don't have to be afraid that you're going to lose control or someone's going to control your mind. Clinical hypnotherapy is just more helping you relax enough, it seems like. Yeah. And a lot of things, again, have that tied in there. We just don't call it hypnosis. Meditation can be very hypnotic. Just even creative things, people who dance or do art or even run marathons, that's called a state of flow. And when we're in flow, we are in a trance state. Everything else around us fades away a little bit and we're like in the zone. And it's about enhancing those experiences and creating those. Why is that state, why is flow state so good or so healing? 
I think it's a state where the mind and the body just feel really in sync with what they're doing and distractions go away. I think we just live, especially nowadays in a society where there's so many distractions. There's laptops and our phones and all these screens and all these things that are going on in the news. When you're in flow, all of that is irrelevant. You're just in this state of creating and being in the present. And that's where we can just really, I think, access our that ventral vagal, that calm state in our nervous system too. Yeah. You guys have heard us use that word ventral vagal a few times. There's a nucleus in your brain where the vagus nerve comes out of and the vagus nerve has these two main branches and it's a really big nerve. It really does a lot of things in your body and it's one of your only rest and digest nerves. So it's one of the only nerves in your body that tells your body, calm down, you're good. And the ventral vagal is more like, not only are you calm and you're good and you're rested, but you can safely interact with your environment through a way that is really through the lens of intention. You're calm enough where you can be like, how do I want to be in this situation? That part of that nuclei or that place in your brain where that nerve comes from, the front part is the ventral part. That's that word that we're using. And that's that part that really we see will light up when someone is in that very calm, happy, present state where they can really thoughtfully engage with their environment. Now, Lauren, you add what needs to be added to my very basic description. (laughs) No, that was a great from a doctor perspective. I've never been that great with science in the brain. But yeah, I would say just to add to that big goal of trauma therapy is definitely to enhance our time in ventral vagal and to increase our window of tolerance is a term that's used because in that space is our ability to think and to make decisions and to be present and calm, which is usually what's best in terms of interacting with the world and in our relationships. For all those reasons, we really, as much as possible, want to increase that person's ability to experience being in that ventral vagal and having a little less time in those other fight or flight or freeze ends. Do you have a story for us that exemplifies like someone came in, They needed trauma therapy from you. What was something they were able to regain after their work with you? Or maybe a new skill or a new way of relating to someone? This isn't necessarily a skill, but the first thing that's coming to mind is someone that I worked with actually for a recent event. They unfortunately lost their son and they were not able to sleep. There was some self-medicating going on for sleeping. And after just one EMDR session, just the first one, which didn't completely clear out the memory, but got to the most intense part of it. They left that session and told me when they came back the next week that they were able to close their eyes for the first time and not see that disturbing image. They could meditate. They were able to go to sleep without self-medicating. And just those two things right there are life-changing. Just being able, that was just such a eye-opener for me because I was thinking about the progression of this person's life had they continued not being able to close their eyes without a disturbing image, without being able to sleep without that. I'm sure you can imagine over time what other coping mechanisms may have had to get like band-aided in there so they could just continue to survive. And this was a person who we had thought would enter into our trauma IOP program and do more long-term therapy. And after a few sessions, they were able to go back to work. They didn't need to stay any longer. Guys, if you're sitting at home thinking like, my kid did have some bullying that happened to them a few years ago, or yeah, I did lose a loved one a few years ago. And honestly, I don't know if I was really ever the same after that. Or the pandemic really took a toll on me. And I don't know that I have fully recovered my joy. This is a really great option to explore. Therapy in general, 
everyone should be in therapy. Lauren, you tell me, why should everyone just be in therapy in general? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, again, where else do you get to go to to just have that time, solely focus on you, nobody else. You get to choose what you're working on. You get to set the pace. You get to set the goals and you get to work together with someone. You're not alone in it. When it comes to trauma, it's a very isolating experience. Being able to go through a journey with someone else is definitely a very healing experience. And I also just wanted to put a little plug out there for EMDR in terms of in addition to trauma, even if you're not struggling with trauma like anxiety, depression, just phobias, EMDR is really, really a great tool for helping the brain to actually work through those as well. Because a lot of those experiences are actually tied to unprocessed memories as well. It's just an approach that is really useful for a number of things, eating disorder, substance use, all of that. This wasn't on our outline, but I want to ask you, why would these types of therapies help folks with addiction and how does it help them? Well, yeah, again, addiction is usually a coping mechanism, like a symptom of a deeper wound that the person has experienced. And now using drugs and alcohol is a way to cope with that. And then unfortunately, if we use drugs and alcohol for a period of time, that can create more trauma in our lives because of what happens because of that. EMDR, again, is tied to what are the experiences that contributed to you doing that in the first place? And let's deal with those experiences and clear them out so that there is no need to continue using substances anymore. From that approach, that is really why it's it works really well. Also, the thing, the approach that I like with EMDR too that I learned with working with addictions, whether it's substance use or eating disorders and things like that, is they have this approach that's really positive goal focused. Before you even work with the individual on their triggers or on traumatic memories, you're going to first develop what's called a positive treatment goal. And instead of it being like, I want to stop getting high, it's like, okay, what do you want in your life? If you stopped getting high, what would you be doing? How would you be living? Let's get a really clear, vivid image of that if we can. And then let's build that in along the way. You're always working towards that positive goal instead of away from... Because a lot of clients feel deprived sometimes. Like, oh, I can't do that anymore. I can't drink. I can't hang out with my friends. And it's like, but what else do you want in your life? And let's really make that the focus that we keep coming back to as a motivator and as something to help them stay focused. I feel like even your story of the person who was self-medicating to sleep, who then did not have to do that, is a really powerful illustration of the way in which using EMDR to treat the root cause and to treat the trauma can help free someone of the craving and the need to use whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no need for that coping if you don't have anything that's driving it. All right, get ready (laughs) for everyone who's going to come see you and emdria.org better also get ready because I feel like there's a lot of people who are going to heal. And I am so thrilled because I just wish we had more billboards about this or Instagram ads and whatever we could do to get the word out. I am just so thrilled that you came and talked to us today about this. And before you leave, Lauren, I want to ask you just maybe someone who's listening to this and they have a loved one who's recently been through a traumatic event. Can you just speak to them for a second? And obviously they're going to tell them if they're nearby, go see you or a clinician you've trained, um, go look at EMDR, go get into therapy. But what can they do day to day that will help their loved one while they're going through this journey? I would say just keep taking care of themselves and being able to reach out for their own support. It's really important that when we're trying to take care of someone else or we're worried about them, that we can sometimes lose sight of what our 
own needs are. It's the metaphor of our oxygen mask going first before somebody else. Just know that it is okay to take care of yourself. It is okay to reach out for your own support and your own help. And yeah, there are people out there who can help your loved one as well. I'm not looking to always, I know some people are worried that when they come in for help, they'll get a lot of sympathy and I like feel so sorry for you. And it's more like empathy. We're just very empathetic people. We want to be able to understand and be with you and what you're experiencing. And yeah, I think that can be really validating for some people. A million percent. And what I'll share with you guys, a lot of people, and maybe I'm just stubborn or I don't know, but I feel like I heard that my whole life. You can't pour from an empty cup. You got to take care of yourself first. And I just never felt true enough for me to take seriously. And even though it was true, I knew it was true. But somebody taught me one day that me just going to therapy could be an excellent example for my loved one. If I'm like, I'm going to therapy and I'm doing this and you're going to see how it improves my life. That could maybe be inspiration for them to then feel like, okay, maybe I can do it too. For whatever reason, I'm just throwing that in there as well. If you're at home and you're like me for whatever reason, and you're like, man, I want to believe that. I can't pour from my own cup, but my own experience doesn't suggest that because I've been pouring from an empty cup forever. <laughs> yeah, I want to invite you. Maybe you going and you getting EMDR will help your loved one who might not feel ready yet. Maybe they didn't listen to this podcast. Maybe they're not going to, but they might see you go. And after three sessions, they just notice you're happier. You're lighter. You feel better. That alone is often way more inspiring than you giving your loved one who's already struggling one more thing that they feel they have to do. You go do it and show them what's possible. And I think that does empower other people to do the same. A million percent. Thank you so much, Lauren, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me and for letting me share the word about trauma therapy and EMDR. Like you said, any way that we can get the word out there. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.